I'm Carrie Dozer, and this is TGen Talks. Today we're talking about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, a condition that probably doesn't sound familiar to most Americans, but one that is probably far more prevalent than most of us realize. The condition causes excess fat in one's liver cells, and it covers a wide range of liver conditions. Our guest will talk about why this disease might be due for a name change, and why it varies widely in the way people experience it. Factors like genetics, lifestyle, diet, gender, and even stage in life can mean everything for those who learn they have it. And for this episode of TGen Talks, I'm joined by Dr. Johanna Stefano. Tell me your title, what you do at TGen, and tell me what you study. What's your job? Um, my title is professor, and I'm the head of the Diabetes and Fibrotic Disease Research Unit at TGen. But really what I'm focused on is uh, the role that the liver plays in mediating the body's response to the environment and metabolic disease that develops in the liver. Um, I started off my career studying type 2 diabetes. And um, type 2 diabetes, as you know, is a, is a raging epidemic, and it's accompanied by obesity. Mm-hmm. About 15 years ago or so, I started becoming aware of the role of the liver in all of this metabolic um, mess mm-hmm. and um, and how the the liver really responds to the diet. For example, a, a, a diet high in ultra processed food, the liver is going to take on fat because the body doesn't have anywhere else to put the fat. And then when the when the liver starts taking on fat then we see insulin resistance developing. So we used to think that maybe diabetes caused fatty liver disease, but now there's a possibility that fatty liver disease is indeed causing diabetes. So it's a bi-directional relationship. Do they always happen together? Not always. Okay. So you study something called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It's a long title, but it seems pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. Is it just as simple as it sounds? So first of all, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a really awful name for a disease. You know, first of all, it has a stigma associated with alcohol. And, and second of all, it's just, it doesn't roll off the tongue very well, right? right. Um, some people have proposed renaming it to metabolic fatty liver disease. That's not much better. It's not, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> and besides, it implies that there's a metabolic defect, but a lot of people develop fatty liver disease without changes in metabolism. Um, and I like to think of that as like there's many paths up the mountain, but the view at the top is the same. Mm-hmm. So you can still get a fatty liver, but you're getting there in different ways. Some of it could be lifestyle. Some of it could be genetic susceptibility. Some could be you know, alcohol intake. But once you have that fatty liver, do you always or most always develop type 2 diabetes? No, but a significant proportion of people do. So that's what we're trying to get at. We're trying to get at the type 2 diabetic. Mm -hmm. So the name non-alcoholic fatty liver disease distinguishes itself from alcoholic fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the difference and the extremes in those two. This is a good question. Um, It's never as cut and dried as you think it would be. Um, In order for you to say with confidence that alcohol is not contributing to the development of fatty liver in an individual, the only way that you can really do that excuse me, is to know that the person doesn't really drink at all. Mm -hmm. Because we are just starting to realize that different people have different tolerances or different sensitivities to alcohol. So you could have a glass of wine with dinner three times a week, and you might think that's fine. But maybe because of 
different factors, your genetics, you know, you, your lifestyle, whether you, you have a, a, a poor quality diet on top of that, you could develop an abnormal hepatic response to that small amount of alcohol because of the extenuating circumstances. And then, you know, someone else could theoretically be able to, you know, drink a couple drinks a day and be fine. I think most people listening would say, I know both of those people, right? Yeah. I know the person who didn't seem to drink at all yet died of something alcohol related. And I know my great uncle who, you know, drank until he was 95 and nobody knew how he did it. Is that just boiled down to their genetic makeup? No, I don't think it's just <laughs> genetics. I think it's a, a confluence of different things. It could be genetics. It could be lifestyle factors. Um, you you know, it could be your, your gender. It could be your stage in life. For example, if you're a woman and you're after menopause, um, your risk is higher. So there's, there's the alcohol caused, or at least we've touched on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. The non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, you said, has a, has a great genetic component. So some people just are dealt a, a poor hand in that area. It, yes. Who is dealt the poor hand and who has a better, a better chance at not developing this? That's a great question. Um, so the, the genetic variants that are most associated with the development of fatty liver are in a gene called PNPLA3. And um, this was identified out of Texas and Helen Hobbs group. It was a really great genetic study. Um, and the results of that study seem to indicate that uh, people of Hispanic um, ancestry are more at risk um, from, from variants in this gene than other populations. And indeed, we know that when we look at the prevalence of fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, that we see that individuals of Latino ancestry have a higher prevalence than people of Caucasian, whereas people of African ancestry are, are at the other end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. We don't see as much fatty liver in people of African ancestry, even given the same amount of body weight. Given that information, what mm -hmm. does somebody do if they know they have a genetic predisposition? Is it simply the way they live? Yes. Like if if you knew that you had this variant, then you would want to be very careful of your fat intake because these variants seem to affect the release of fat from the liver. If the fat can't effectively get rid of triglycerides from the liver, then it's just, they're going to accumulate, right? And so a lot of these variants really affect the export of fat from the liver. So if that's something that is preventable, but at least it's addressable, mm -hmm. how, uh, how available is that information? Is, is one of your goals to get to the point where everyone has that information? And, and how close are we to knowing really what kind of hand we've been dealt? Oh, this is the crux of the matter. Um, hepatologists are doctors of specialists who study the liver, who study liver disease. So outside of the field of hepatology, not many, not many clinicians are aware of the significance of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, primary care physicians are at the forefront. They're going to be the ones who are going to identify non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but many PCPs don't even know about it. And usually people get diagnosed incidentally because there's no symptoms. Um, you know, they're usually getting some an ultrasound for something else or mm -hmm. they're getting blood work for something else and, and it turns out that, oh, hey, there's a lot of fat in the liver or, hey, the liver enzyme levels are high. What's up with that? Um, but they're not really equipped to, to deal with this. And, and unfortunately, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease 
is burgeoning. Yeah. You know, the, the rates are galloping. What about the American diet if you take alcohol out of the picture? Americans eat much differently than we did 100 years ago, 200 years ago. What, what is the food that we eat predominantly in this country due to that metabolism and the ability of our liver to take care of alcohol? So um, some people call the food industry in our country, you know, big food. And there's a lot wrong with big food. Um, and, and worse, you know, we give this food to our children when they're growing, like cereal or, you know, you think about the marketing toward children and children want to eat that. Well, that's where our eating habits develop mm -hmm. in childhood. And it's very hard to undo those as an adult. So the eating habits you develop in childhood are usually the same ones you have as an adult. There is so much wrong with the food that we eat. It's not even food, really. And then there's just so much sugar. Now, the big food is getting away from putting sugar and stuff because, you know, they want to make money. And people are getting wise. So people don't want to buy products of sugar. So, so big food's pulling sugar out of the products, which is a good thing. But then, you know, they're also putting other stuff in. A lot of other things in the food besides sugar. Right, yeah. right. So tell me about your lab. Tell me about your work and what it is that you're trying to do to address all of these problems. It seems like a lot to do. It is. It's a lot to do. And, and fortunately, there's a lot of brilliant minds in this space who are working on this problem. So, um, you know, my hope is that we'll get there sooner rather than later. Um, some of the work that we're doing now, um, we're, we're looking at genetic variants in normal weight people. So let me backtrack a second and say that you know, the dogma used to be that fatty, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease developed in people who had obesity or who were overweight. And we're finding out that that's actually not true. Mm -hmm. um, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in lean people is actually increasing. Mm -hmm. And um, so that kind of throws the whole idea of, you know, the role of obesity out the window. Um, still, people who have obesity are more likely to get non-alcoholic fatty liver disease than normal weight people. So in normal weight individuals, we think that when non-alcoholic fatty liver disease develops, it's more likely to develop because of genetic susceptibility and also lifestyle factors. And that would be a sedentary lifestyle. That would be a poor quality diet. Um, and some of these genetic variants, for example, there's um, variants in a gene that is the only gene in the body that produces a nutrient called choline. Choline is an essential nutrient, and if you have those variants, you're not producing choline. So if you have a choline-deficient diet, you will develop fatty liver disease. Um, and so we're, you know, we're starting to learn more and more about this. So what my group is really focused on is the genetic factors that influence the development of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in lean people and try to raise awareness of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in this population among clinicians. Um, in addition to that, we also see an increase in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in postmenopausal women. So we're, we're doing um, work in that space too. Tell me about your lab. Tell me about your team. And, and what is the question that you, you, would, you set out to answer every day? So the, the overarching question that we're trying to answer is, 
how does non-alcoholic fatty liver disease develop? Um, how does the liver communicate with other um, cells in the body, other organs in the body? Um, we are primarily interested in identifying better ways to detect fatty liver disease. Um, for now, the gold standard is liver biopsy. And of course, it's invasive. It is. Yeah. And, and it's not very accurate. And um, so elastography is a better approach. And that's what a, is that? That's a measure of the stiffness of the liver. So, but we're also interested in looking for targets because there are no approved therapeutics for the treatment of fatty liver disease. Um, And finally, it's really also looking at the different ways that the disease develops. So if you're developing a fatty liver because of underlying insulin resistance, you're going to be you're going to be more effectively treated with a pharmaceutical that's going to improve insulin sensitivity. Whereas if you're developing fatty liver because of a genetic mutation, then you're going to need a different approach. Yeah. It's back to what you said about the view at the top of the mountain is the same, even though all of those journeys might look very different. Right. Yeah. All of those patients are winding up in the same place. Right. So how hopeful are you that in the next 10 to 20 years, there is significant progress made? Because you did allude to the fact that clinicians aren't always aware. You, The people studying this issue, like yourself, it's not a large group. Mm-mm. What's your hope? Well, I'm, I'm very confident that we're getting there. I feel like we're having an escalation of, of data coming out. Um, there's some very good work going on within the um, microbiome community, showing the influence of gut dysbiosis. That means having an altered composition of gut bacteria. Also, we're seeing some results with some drugs, um, you know, drugs used in the treatment of type 2 diabetes that might have a positive benefit on fatty liver disease. For the audience for this podcast, what, what would you like them to know most about what it is that you're studying? That fatty liver disease isn't uh, your fault. You know, there's so many things out there that are conspiring to put fat in your liver. It's not your fault. That's a hopeful way to end a podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. For more on TGen's research, go to tgen.org slash news. The Translational Genomics Institute, part of City of Hope, is an Arizona-based nonprofit medical research institution dedicated to conducting groundbreaking research with life-changing results. You can find more of these podcasts at tgen.org slash tgentalks, Apple and Spotify, and most podcast platforms. For TGen Talks, I'm Carrie Dozer.